So today we have Brian Muresco, who is the author of The Immortality Key. And we went deep into the secret origins of early Christianity and the potential use of psychedelics, as well as the Greek illusion mysteries. And you can check out the timestamps of all the topics we discussed in the description box below. Uh, please make sure to give Brian some love and buy his new book. It's or I think it's already reached the top 10 in the New York bestseller list. So it just goes to show how a lot of people are yearning for this type of information. So yeah, go buy it. It will definitely take you on a journey. And if you are watching this on YouTube, feel free to check out the Your Mate Tom podcast on Spotify and iTunes. Give us a five-star review, help us rise the ranks. And of course, a huge thank you to all our patrons for supporting us. You guys are basically the lifeblood of this channel and really help us make these podcasts and documentaries. So if you want to see more videos, Check out Patreon, become a monthly supporter, where you'll get access to exclusive content as well as some special perks. YouTube tends to demonetize and censor our content quite a bit, so Patreon basically gives us creative freedom and allows us to make real authentic content, something that I feel is missing in social media. But anyways, all all the links are in the description box below. Hope you guys enjoy the podcast. Much love. Peace. Sí, como todos por acá, todos los chilenos, argentinos y uruguayos sí. son siempre siempre italianos. Sí, es verdad. Awesome, man. Yeah, actually, I recorded a documentary about the cannabis legalization over there. Very interesting country. Very nice people. It's a, it's a beautiful. I won the lottery, man, when I married my wife. I had, I had no idea. I got lucky. That's awesome, man. Uh, where are you based? Like Montevideo. At the moment, yeah, although we'll be back and forth to the beach in December and January. Awesome, man. Um, thanks again for coming on, by the way. I really appreciate it. And congrats on reaching the top 10 of the uh, bestseller list. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. I just found out a couple of days ago. Thank you, man. Yeah, how's, how's the journey been anyway? Has it been like, I, I would imagine that the book has been really well received. I'm just going to start recording now, by the way, just to sure. get into it. Uh, Sure. But yeah, man, how's the response been? It's been like, I would imagine ever since you went on the Joe Rogan experience that the response has been phenomenal. How's, it, how's the journey been? It's been fairly psychedelic. <laughs> uh, I would imagine, yeah. This, this is why I don't do drugs, man. Life is, life is crazy enough as it is. What inspired you, by the way, to not, because you said that you were a psychedelic virgin, what inspired you to make the choice of not having a personal psychedelic experience while going into deep research mode about this stuff um i don't i answer this different ways every time somebody asks me well i'll say tonight that uh you know i wanted to to remain as objective as possible which was part of the concern and the other concern is um you know wanting to be able to curate this conversation and all the conversations that have taken place since the book came out i told Michael mcconish on cnn that if i'd been doing psychedelics for the past 12 years it's possible he and i wouldn't be speaking live on the air so ah nice and uh, have you been curious at all on delving deep into this stuff, or are you gonna still making the choice of staying staying a psychedelic virgin? <laughs> I'm happy to be a, a virgin yeah. uh, for for the, for the moment, not forever. The moment. Yeah. And if you were to choose a substance or a sacrament, what would you d- d- dive into? I think only because of the research that I've seen over the years, it, it seems to me like psilocybin is the kind of thing that under the right conditions could deliver one of those textbook mystical experiences. Yeah, it's a good choice. Uh, would you do it like in a clinical setting or would you be 
interested in doing it in a more shamanic setting, like let's say in Mexico? I would, I would, I mean, ideally, well, this is also part of the, part of the answer. I mean, ideally I would do it in a setting that, that taps into the, the sacred roots of Western civilization, which is why I spent all this time studying the mysteries because all of a sudden here we have this substance that seems to provoke these visions fairly reliably, celestial visions, visions that convince atheists that they're being bathed in God's love, et cetera, as I write about in the book. Uh, so it seems like there's technology here, but I think what we're still missing is that sacred container. I mean, e even the way you, you think about it, would I go to the Amazon or Mexico or somewhere or somewhere else? I mean, why, why not right here? Uh, well, not in Uruguay, but why not, why, not in the, why not in the US or Europe or somewhere that traces its roots back to ancient Greece and, mm. and early Christianity, the, the Judeo-Christian tradition at least? Um, I think that there's an opportunity to to study these traditions as a way of creating a new uh, or very old sacred container. Yeah, it, it seems really interesting kind of reconnecting with Western culture because like, I, I grew up Catholic, even though I rejected it kind of most of my life. And only this year is like when I started going really deep into it, because it's funny how a lot of Western people tend to go to the Eastern philosophies because that's where all the mystical stuff is. But as right. you've written in your book, it's... It's all there in the Western culture, in Western religions, and it's like really profound stuff, man. I just finished your book, the audio version, last night, and it's a lot to take in, a lot to take in. It's like 15 hours, so I'll, pro I'll probably have to d dive back into it, but man. So you, must be sick of, you must be sick of this voice already, man. <laughs> no, no, I think you're a good narrator, man. I'm glad. I actually, uh, I'm not a fan when the audio books are narrated by someone else that's not the author you know so it's actually yeah. quite refreshing yeah Thanks, man. man just for like people who haven't read the book or who haven't heard of the immortality key can you just describe what it's actually about sure uh so the short version it's that it's it's my attempt over the past 12 years to solve the best kept secret in history which i always say is not fancy marketing uh that that's the phrase that the great houston smith perhaps one of the greatest religious scholars of the 20th century, that that's how he described the mysteries of Eleusis, uh, which was the ancient capital of, uh, of Greece, essentially. Uh, uh, you know, a mystical capital that welcomed everybody from Plato to Marcus Aurelius for 2,000 years. But what Houston Smith was referring to was this potion that was drunk by these initiates that provoked these, these visions. And he called it the best kept secret because we don't know much about this stuff. Uh, it was it was all secret. It was all clandestine. We have little hints and clues in the literature from what may have happened there, but we really don't know. And so we were grasping at straws for the longest time until some of these newer sciences started to come along. And that that's when I picked up the scent in about 2007, 2008, because this new scientific data was coming out to what potentially provoked these visions. And so uh, I went after you know, all these archaeobotany journals and talked to all these experts at Harvard and MIT, and I traveled to Greece and Germany and Spain and France and Italy. And wow. the end of it all, as you just finished last night, is, uh, is the story of an overlooked tradition. Uh, not, not because of any grand conspiracy, but the simple <laughs> fact that most people don't read Latin and Greek these days. And even if you do, you're probably not going to come across the study of drugs. So it, it was my attempt to investigate the sacred pharmacological roots of the West. How's that? Yeah, yeah, it's good, man. Uh, what inspired you to even start this journey? Because it's not a very, like you just said, not many people like to research 
religion and drugs unless you're you know maybe some conspiracy theories and people on youtube who kind of have a dmt hit and be like oh man what happened if jesus smoked dmt or something like that but you actually did it <laughs> legitly like like you did it legitimately and that's what i really appreciate like you did the nitty-gritty work man and it again i would love to get into it i'd like to start off just with the kind of uh, like what inspired you to do this, and then we'll kind of go into the Eleusian mysteries and up to Paleo sure. Christianity. But yeah, man, what what inspired you to go on this crazy journey? Yeah, I'm you know I'm boring myself with how I answer, so I want to say something <laughs> different. Again, I mean the, the but the honest answer is that you know I just like doing it. How about that for now? I mean I just I like doing it. You know I was I'm I'm, I'm a practicing attorney, uh, and you know I I studied Latin, Greek, and Sanskrit as an undergrad in the states. And then um, afterwards, I went to law school, and I've been practicing law since I was 25 years old. And this is always the stuff that, that I liked. I mean, ideally, I would have become a priest or gotten a PhD and, and taught classics in some underpaid job somewhere. Uh, but uh, I, I sold out to Wall Street and started practicing law. And on nights and weekends, the kind of thing that I, I mean, when I go to a bookstore or when I'm on Amazon, as I am every day, I mean, what I'm, I'm looking for, for books on myth and ritual and religion. And then at some point I was reading nothing but books on drugs and one book, you know, piled on top of another. And eight, 10 years after that, I had this giant library of pharmacological literature. And I mean, just the, the, the stuff that I, that I enjoyed. Um, but I think there were enough pieces there where I put that all together into a proposal uh, that was picked up by a publishing house in New York, and that's when I started traveling. I mean, like, you know, that, that gave me the excuse to hop on planes and start spelunking through catacombs and archives at the Vatican. That's awesome. How was that, by the way? Like, going into the, va the awesome. secret archives of awesome. the Vatican? Was it like a yeah, Tom it's, Hanks it's movie, awesome. just uncovering this conspiracy? <laughs> or? <laughs> yeah. that, that's what it felt like. Uh -huh. That's what it felt like, man. I mean, that, that's what it felt like when I was 15, frankly. When I was studying Latin and Greek, I mean, um, uh, I got this scholarship from the Jesuits to go to this prep school. Uh, otherwise, I never would have gone otherwise. And and Latin and Greek were taught there. And I mean, from the very beginning, it seemed like this that this mystery. I mean, looking down at Greek at those those characters, you know, they're they're totally foreign. And yet, when you start sounding it out and learning the structure of the language, it's it's actually kind of familiar. You know, it's it stands behind a lot of the words that we use every day in English. And uh, it felt like the, this giant mystery, like I was on the cusp of, of finding something out, you know, that, that was uh, ordinarily reserved to, to kids in, in tweed jackets and the Dead Poets Society <laughs> and things like that. And so I stuck with it. And then when I was at Brown in undergrad, I kept at it because only because I liked it. And because Brown is one of these places that allows you to study whatever the hell you want uh, with that, without care to what comes afterwards and gainful employment. So I just, I just, I just kept sticking with this stuff. Uh, how were the priests? Did, were they like very receptive to it, or were they kind of like, yeah, to keep on asking questions, didn't you? And they kind of like, I don't know, was, was there resistance to it, or were they actually really happy to talk about all this kind of stuff? By and large, yeah, uh, they they were they were really happy to talk about it. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, a lot of this is ancient history. I mean, mm -hmm. really is ancient history. And I'm not the first to take a look at this stuff, but but I think I'm one of the few to do it in hopefully a respectful way, a scientific way. And mm -hmm. I would always be you know upfront with them that uh, you know here are these psychopharmacologists at Hopkins and NYU, and these are the experiences people are having on psilocybin in these you know strictly controlled conditions under peer review. Uh, these publications, 
And uh, I just had uh, you know open open questions for them, and they were always happy to talk about it. There was one one priest I won't mention his name, uh, but he was at the Pope's University in Rome. And when I told him about the research out of Hopkins and my interest, he said something to the effect of, "Well, you're going to put us out of a job." Oh, really? And, and I. <laughs> And I said, well, that, that's not really the point. You know, it's, it's, uh, I think that there's always this tension between mysticism and bureaucracy or organized faith. But I think, you know, for, for me, uh, I like talking to priests about this stuff because I think there's a, there's a, a, there's a giant role mm. for the priesthood. I mean, not just the Catholic Church, but the Orthodox and Evangelical community and the Protestants. I think that there's a huge opportunity for all the organized faiths and Judaism, I mean, to really incorporate some of this technology for their, their congregation. Wow. Are you, do you have a religious background? Well, uh, so I mentioned this, this prep school was, it was run by Jesuits. I went to 13 years of Catholic school and, oh, wow. to be, you know, it's, it's hard, it's hard for me to kick that man. Uh, and I'm sitting here in a, in a Catholic country right now. Um, the, the U S is a heavily Christianized country, obviously. Uh, you know, it, it's hard for me to, to shake that. Mm. Uh, you know, the, my, my oldest, my oldest memories of religion our stained glass windows and the smell of incense and, and sitting through the, these long services during Lent. Um, and, you know, part of it's pretty painful, but another part of it for me was, you know, awakening that sense of awe and mystery. The mm. idea that if you, if you look beyond the surface and you, you listen with, with different ears, that what's happening there is very weird, frankly. Yeah. I mean, we're gathering together. There's a, there's a man hanging on a, on a, on a beam of wood at the back of the church, and we're reading from these ancient scriptures and smelling that that incense, and at its root, something very mysterious mm. is happening. You don't know what it is when you're 10, but by the time I was about 27 or 28, little ideas started to come to me. Yeah, definitely. Because I, I grew up in a, I went to a Catholic primary school, not not in high school, and kind of like I said, I rejected it, but now just reconciling and going back to my roots and like really seeing the profundity of the symbol the symbology of it and it's really well psychedelic not to you know pun intended but it really is man like there's like some really deep stuff there and it's like sort of the western canon and even like uh reading the bible and going into christian symbology you can see how a lot of our, our movies today kind of grab from this kind of stuff and yeah, I like just before we get into all the Christianity stuff, I'd love to just go into Greek culture and like, can you explain what the illusion mysteries are and what this kaikion was and why do people believe that it was ergot, not some other psychedelic? Th sorry, I'm just throwing like heaps of questions there, but <laughs> <laughs> oh, so uh, in, in order, so uh, you know, <laughs> was I say it's the, the the spiritual capital of the ancient world. There were lots mm -hmm. of mystery traditions around in ancient Greece. I guess the most important point to make is that I don't think that the best and brightest of Athens and Rome believed that Zeus was on a mountaintop hurling thunderbolts down at us hapless humans or that Poseidon was off in the seas holding a trident. I mean, these were sophisticated, skeptical people hmm. um, who were nonetheless interested in the meaning of life and trying to, and trying to scratch below the surface. And so for them, these mystery were directly experiencing the divine and having and having these visions and so Eleusis was just one of other mystery traditions but I think I think the most famous because it was administered by the Greek state it was so close to Athens um, and you know, the initiates would make this procession 13 miles from Athens to Eleusis 
We don't really know the details, but they would drink some kind of potion, have this vision almost universally attested as something that erased the fear of death or made them an immortal or a god or a goddess. I mean, they all walked away essentially saying they'd found the meaning of life, to put it in, in simple terms. And, you know, how to how to explain that? Uh, we don't we don't know. Some people thought it was a theatrical performance. Some people thought it was just, you know, smoke and mirrors inside the, this temple dedicated to Demeter in Eleusis. In, in 1978, the guy who discovered LSD, Albert Hoffman, mm -hmm. teamed up with Gordon Wasson and Carl Ruck, who was a classicist uh, at Boston University. And they, they essentially said that what was drunk there uh, was an LSD kind of beer. Uh, so we know that this kukion that you mentioned uh, was the sacrament. And from the ancient literature, we know that there were three ingredients to this thing, barley, water, and mint. And according to Hoffman, Wasson, and Ruck, uh, what was recorded there was not actual barley, but ergotized barley, like bar barley infected with ergot, which mm. is this natural fungus that produces lots of toxic alkaloids and some psychoactive alkaloids. And so it was their thinking um, that the ancient Greeks had stumbled upon some kind of biotechnology, uh, some kind of really sacred pharmacology that called to initiates for the better part of 2000 years. Wow. And how did they control the toxicity level? Because like you said, ergot can be quite uh, right. toxic. So yeah. We have no idea. That, 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 that's, the whole, that's the whole mystery. <laughs> well, I mean, we, we don't know, uh, you know, so I spent years and years tracking down uh, any evidence for that hypothesis and trying to figure out the archaeology and the chemistry that's involved because, you know, one of the, the mysteries on top of the mystery is that no one's ever been able to reverse engineer an ergotized potion that had the kind of effects that Hoffman thought it did. And I went into the archives at Harvard. Um, Gordon Wasson's uh, personal collection is there. And I found a letter that Hoffman wrote to Wasson in 1976 after he'd self-experimented with ergonavine, oh, one wow. of these alkaloids in ergot. And he claimed that with a small amount, uh, he claimed it was five to 10 times more potent than psilocybin. Um, he, he claimed that he had some kind of psychoactive effects. But again, no one's really been able to recreate it. I talked to lots of people uh, who don't want to be named, who've been experimenting with the chemistry. And they, they, they've also had similar effects with morning glory seeds and lysergic acid amide and all alloys that could have been present. But uh, the, the basic truth is that we don't know uh, what was in there. Hmm. And do you think maybe because they mixed it with beer, maybe the alcohol kind of made it more palatable? Uh, that's, it's possible. It's possible. Mm. And we know that, that other, um, that other substances were mixed with wine, um, which I'm not <clears throat> sure what to make of it chemically, aside from the fact that beer and wine are described by the archaeochemists who look into this stuff as like the universal palliative. It was very common to mix drugs into, into beer and wine. Uh, we have that recorded in the literature for a long time, uh, but it's only recently that some of the data, the scientific data has come out to support that. Hmm. And and how did the like the Greek culture transition into Christianity? What what were their thoughts about Eleusis and what these crazy Greeks were doing? Well, see, I mean, it, I, again, it's it, it kind of begs the question because if you just think about the ancient world, this Eleusis that we're talking about, right, thirteen miles northwest of Athens, uh, it calls to the best and brightest for centuries and centuries. It was a really it was a known quantity. 
Uh, mm. You couldn't grow up in the area and not hear of the mysteries of Eleusis, for God's sake. That, I mean, they may have been there in some form from 1500 BC. I mean, so a super long time. Now, when you think about the earliest Christian communities, think about the, the letters, the epistles of St. Paul. You know, Paul is writing in Greek to Greek speakers all over this Greek-speaking part of the Mediterranean. And one of the letters, one of the communities he writes to is Corinth. Corinth today is an hour, one hour west of Eleusis. I mean, the oh, odds wow. of a, an hour, the odds yeah, of a yeah. Corinthian uh, either not being initiated themselves, which is a possibility, into Eleusis, or not having a parent or a grandparent or a brother or sister or cousin who was actually initiated at Eleusis is pretty close to nil. Uh, I mean, we don't know how big the community in Corinth was, but they would have known about the mysteries, if not experienced them. And so how do you sell a skeptical Greek community down the road from Eleusis on this new religion unless you're speaking on their terms? And maybe part of it was just speaking on their terms. But I mean, there is no Christianity without a Eucharist. There mm. is no Christianity without the blood of Christ. And so I spent a lot of time in the book researching what the blood of Christ would have meant to people like the Corinthians. Hmm. Wow. And what, what do you know what the Illusion Mysteries was like? Like, what, what did they do in this festival? How did they set up the, the ceremony, yeah. I'm assuming, what it was? We, again, we don't have that much detail, but we know from some of the sources that it was this long pilgrimage um, and, and a whole procession, a whole, a whole series of pomp and circumstance that takes place over nine days. And uh, the initiates get to Eleusis and they enter uh, Demeter's temple. It was this temple dedicated to the Lady of the Grain, the grain goddess, hence, mm -hmm. hence the beer. Because okay. in the myths that surround this, uh, this cult dedicated to Demeter and her daughter Persephone, uh, you know, at some point in the myth, um, Demeter is offered wine by the king and queen who run the affairs there, and she and she dismisses it. She says that she wants the kukion. This is where this is how we know the kukion was central to the ceremony. She asked for this kind of beer, rudimentary beer beverage. Uh, so so we know that at least we don't know when it was consumed or when they got there, but there was this all night affair inside her temple, and we know it could have accommodated about three thousand people at any one time. We know there's a hierophant, like a, a high priest. We know there are priestesses there. We know there are um, vessels, chalices, called uh, a kernos in Greek, a very specific chalice okay. that you would use to mix different ingredients into this potion. So we have, you know, clues like that, but we just don't know the, the, the series from A to Z of exactly what happened. Right, like the exact ritual step by step. Yeah, I guess that's why it's called the mysteries anyway. But that's, that's right. yeah, uh, how did this transition? Because you talk about the the beer, like it, what transition from a beer era into like the wine millennium? How did that transition happen, and why did they change from beer to wine for this sacrament? Why I don't really know. Aside from uh, you know the the Canaanites and Phoenicians were pretty good at making wine, and and that in the in the Near East, and and that and the culture transformed. You know, from at least the second millennium, um, you know, we have wine finds in the Canaanite period, like 1700 BC. My colleague Andrew Coe at MIT, uh, he's famous for unearthing the world's oldest wine cellar uh, at Tel Cabri in modern day Galilee, uh, about 1700 BC. So at least then there's this really sophisticated botanical understanding of the landscape. 
Uh, and it wasn't just wine. It was my, wine being mixed with all kinds of different things like honey and storax and terebinth, cypress, cedar, juniper, mint, myrtle, cinnamon, wow. and things like that. I mean, so really like weird, weird concoction and potions, you know, sacraments. We, we're not, not table wine. Yeah. Uh, and this is, uh, we see again and again, it, it's more common than, than not. And, you know, uh, potions like that, they tend to replace beer so that by the time of the Roman Empire, for example, like the beer drinkers were all in the West, like in Iberia and France and places like that. They still had their beer and it was considered barbaric by the Romans to drink beer. They just I mean, the Romans did what the Greeks did. The Greeks did what the Phoenicians did. Right. And everybody was drinking wine by the time of ancient Greece. I guess that, that that's how it happened. It was a cultural shift. Right. Well, it tastes sweeter, I guess. I, I would prefer wine. So maybe it's just a... <laughs> and yeah, that's... I'm a beer man oh really okay <laughs> uh you said actually in your book something that really stuck with me I, I wrote it down you said that uh religion isn't a byproduct of civilization it's the engine of civilization can you can you expand what you mean by this yeah uh, there i'm referring to um gobekli tepe mm -hmm. or at least some of the interpretations of what gobekli tepe was so Talking about these sacraments, how does wine replace beer, leads to another question is, where does beer come from in the first place? And uh, I, I do think the evidence does show, I think, at least in, in Eurasia, uh, in this part, uh, you know, like the Near East and parts West, uh, that, that beer is pretty old. And we have initial evidence from places like the Rockefeller Cave in Israel or Gobekli Tepe in southern Turkey, that beer could be 12, 13,000 years old. Um, but wow. You know, but it's not just when it shows up, it's why it shows up. So uh, a scientist, I, t I flew to Munich, Germany to talk to Martin Zarnkow, one of the world's leading beer scientists, who, who did some initial tests in 2012, they published it, on some of these giant limestone troughs and barrels out of Gobekli Tepe. And they found uh, the initial chemical evidence uh, for the brewing of beer mm. uh, a long, long time ago. Uh, but it shows up in this megalithic complex. Uh, I'm not sure what you know about Gobekli Tepe, but it, you know it, it comes out of nowhere. These are hunter-gatherers building these giant multi-ton stone sanctuary ceremonial enclosures that are just not supposed to be there. I mean, this is like 6,000 years before Stonehenge, 7,000 years before uh, Egypt and Sumeria and the high civilizations. It's just, it comes out of nowhere. And the reason it's there, according to Klaus Schmidt of the, the German Archaeological Institute, who discovers this in the 90s, I mean, he himself thought that it, it had some kind of religious uh, purpose. And even I think it was on uh, the Smithsonian Magazine, they dubbed Gobekli Tepe the world's first temple. And right. this idea that, yeah, the, world, the <clears throat> world's first temple, the idea that, um, you know, this shift from hunting and gathering to agriculture uh, which happens around this time, is somehow predicated upon a very religious sensibility. It was a sanctuary site, and it was a pilgrimage site. From what we can tell, nobody lived there. So they built this thing, which which took enormous human resources to do in the first place. Um, they came from all over the place on a seasonal basis to do it, and it appears, together with all that, they were drinking beer and having these parties and communing with their ancestors. And so it turns beer into like an everyday beverage into a sacrament, if, that, if that's the case. And it does mean, mm. if that's the case, that religion is really the, the engine for all this. And mm. the, some of the traditional thinking is that by getting to these high civilizations, only then 
does really powerful religious sensibility develop. But it appears at Quebec Tepe that it's the opposite, that it begins with um, this vision. It begins with this, uh, this desire to contact uh, the dead. Hmm. And why do you think in today's culture we're going kind of more atheistic? Has that always been around? Or is, do you think that's like a new manifestation of modern culture? Ah, uh, that's a great question. I, yeah, I mean, as a you know, when I when I look into history, I I see I see gods and goddesses. Yeah. When I when I look into history, I see I see all. I see people who uh, are in awe of the cosmos. Um, I see people who are in awe of the the land that provides for for them. Uh, and I think that's that's something that that's fairly universal. Like like language, you look around at mm. different human populations since time immemorial, and only a couple things pop up. Language and religion are two of them, um, amongst amongst others. But it's it's so prevalent uh, and so universal. I talked with a paleoanthropologist in South Africa about this a month ago, Lee Berger, and he says that when you see something so widely distributed like that, religion, uh, that it's it's probably an inheritance. Mm. Uh, so where did that come from? Uh, and it's really, really interesting to think that it may have come from a different species, um, an archaic hominid, that, that maybe Homo wow. sapiens isn't, isn't even the first religious uh, human population, which is a, a fabulous theory, but, but worth speculating about. Yeah, it, it definitely seems to me anyway that it's like this yearning of the soul to, to commune with the divine. And even like you said, like many even that I've met many atheists have been completely converted to, Oh, yep. There's definitely a God after having like a really profound psychic, not all, of course, I'm sure that some are probably rolling their eyes right now, but that's fine. <laughs> uh, and, uh, yeah. Cause like in, in the immortality key, you talk about how witches had a very important role or shamans or whatever you want to call them, which is of course prevalent in all these movies that we see today, especially Disney movies. Uh, what 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 role did they play, and why why were, were witches so important in culture, and how why did they get repressed so much? Well, that that that's the big question. Uh, the the other question I can answer is just it's, it's the it's it's the it's what shows up mm -hmm. uh, when you study the Eleusinian mysteries, for example. Um, the mysteries at Eleusis originally were restricted to women. Women it was only women who were allowed initiation. Um, oh. When you think about the, the mysteries of Dionysus. Uh, the Greek god of wine and theater and ecstasy, um, the guy who precedes Jesus in, in many ways um, by introducing wine into these mysteries. It was women. His main followers were women. They were called Mynads. Hmm. And they were the ones who mixed the wine. It was also thought to be women. You know, um, it was priestesses, we think, who mixed up that potion. And then going back you know, into the Bronze Age, with the Egyptians and Sumerians, and then far before that in the Neolithic into the Paleolithic, uh, we think that it was women who were typically involved in brewing these beers and mixing the wine. And it's the same thing you find in early Christianity. You find you find women recorded in some of the literature, uh, even by the church fathers. It talks about women mixing wine. And if you go into the catacombs under Rome, like I did, you'll see you'll see frescoes of women mixing wine in some version of an early Eucharist. And, you know, if you extrapolate that out, again, you find women um, being the repositories for traditional folk healing and sacred pharmacology. And these become the witches 
of, of the Middle Ages and Renaissance, the same witches who are hunted down. And I, I think it's, without overstating it, I think it's fair that you know part of the casualties of the Inquisition was the suppression of this traditional knowledge of plants and herbs and, and fungi. Uh, you know, we, we lost that in the West. So when you ask me if I'm going to go to Mexico to, to, to try my, my sacrament for the first time, there's a reason you're asking that. It's because Gordon Wasson, uh, who discovers psilocybin containing mushrooms in the 1950s went to Mexico. Mm -hmm. He didn't go to Italy. He didn't go to Greece to find those mushrooms. But the evidence suggests that very powerful tools were available in Greece and Italy in antiquity and throughout history until at some point, you know, we, we lost it. Mm. Yeah, m mushrooms are an interesting one because they grow in base virtually every country in the world. So it, they would have had to be around. I feel like every culture would have at least come across mushrooms in one way, shape or form. Uh, it's hard to kind of, you know, concrete that into scientific evidence, but it seems like it would. Like even in Australia, like they, every winter, they just pop up everywhere. Like even in front of the libraries, police station, that's what's like really funny that they just grow in public, especially close to <laughs> civilization. Maybe it's they're trying to communicate to us or something. I don't know. Uh, but actually, I just want to go into like Jesus because there's a lot of myths about Jesus. I feel like there's there's more different theories about Jesus than any religious figure that I, I can think of, right? Like you hear things like uh, he never existed, that it was all parables and metaphors, mm -hmm. or he represented Christ consciousness, or he was a mushroom, or these kind of things. Uh, was he a real person that existed, that walked this earth? <laughs> You're asking me? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm asking you. What do you believe? Um, I'm not sure what I believe. Okay. I'm not sure what I believe. Um, I, for, for purposes of the book, uh, I, I think it's important to, I think it's important to, to start with the base that there was a human being named Jesus. 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 Yeah. Uh, they, they had no J. They had no J in Greek. Okay. Uh, so I, I, think, I think there was a Jesus who lived and breathed and walked the earth and had these experiences and, and whose, um, whose gospel was recorded by mm. these four relatively contradictory gospels that became part of the New Testament. Uh, there are other gospels out there. Uh, so, you know, I do think there was a historical Jesus, um, but the more you dig into it, I also do think that the one recorded in the New Testament is not the full picture. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that the Jesus recorded in some of the Gnostic literature or the Gospel of Mary Magdalene or some of the extra biblical literature right. that we now have and can't very well ignore, uh, like the Gospel of Thomas, yep. uh, I don't think that Jesus ought to be ignored uh, because I think that was a Jesus that did speak to some people, just like maybe these alternative Eucharists spoke to some people in antiquity, just like they do today. You know, the idea of a psychedelic Eucharist is not new. If you mm. go down, or if I go up from where I am to Brazil uh, and, and talk to the Santo Daime, they're using a psychedelic Eucharist in, in their version of the, of the faith. So I think that there are all kinds of Jesus. Like you say, it's a Rorschach test. You know, you look at Jesus and you find the Jesus you want to see. Mm. Why do you think Jesus of all figures are the, is the most like, has the most theories about it? Because I, I never hear about like people's saying that like Buddha was a mushroom or Muhammad was a metaphor. <laughs> it's always Jesus. I, I, it's just something that I've, I've noticed. Uh, I, have, I have one good answer for that. 
what what's uh, up you know you, you well you and you and i are 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 pretty far away from each other mm-hmm. right now and you're you're in australia yes and so i'm in i'm in south america sometimes i'm in north america but either way you know we're pretty far apart from each other and yet you and i can probably agree on one thing uh what year would you say it was exactly i i actually <laughs> use this example too yeah to what well, 2020 now as far as i'm yeah, concerned exactly yeah it's jesus plus 2020 I exactly mean, uh, we now say the common era when i was growing up it was ad anno domini which i mean it's it's the year of our lord so no matter where you are if you, if you think it's 2020 and i know there are other calendars out there but the calendar that seems to move the world the calendar that seems to move geopolitics and and macroeconomics is all based on 2020 Anno Domini, the year of our master. Dominus in Latin means master. Oh, wow. Yeah. And Jesus, does that, is the translation of that means like savior or something? So uh, there's a, okay, so I'll tell you what Carl Ruck thinks. Okay. Carl Ruck, who was this guy at Boston University, the co-author on that 1978 book. Um, I'm going to mention the title, The Road to a... These, these are the guys who are talking about this psychedelic sacrament at Eleusis, a sacrament that, that in some version, by the way, found its way into Christianity, which is the, uh, the, the thinking there. So, so according to Ruck, uh, so uh, Jesus is a Hellenization of Yesue, uh, Joshua. It's, it's just how that name comes into Greek. Uh, mm. So it, it's, it's a Hebrew name that comes into Greek that way, Ye- Jesus. Um, but we don't really know what Jesus means. Uh, if you're, if you were an ancient Greek and you heard that, that word, it wouldn't have been crazy for you to think of Yeso, right? Jesus, Yeso. It sounds pretty familiar. Yeso yep. or Yaso was the Greek goddess of healing. Uh, and so Ruck, Ruck, um, he finds the root of Jesus in Eos. Eos is Greek for poison or, or drug. And so the way Ruck translates Jesus is the drug man, uh, the, the wow. god of healing. Wow. The drug man. That's crazy. The drug man. That's heresy, Brian. How dare you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. He's he's been told that quite a bit since 1978. <laughs> he's quite proud of it. <laughs> and uh, how? Actually, because there's there's many ways that we can go about it. But like, how? Let's just go into paleo Christianity. Like, paint us a picture of how that these times were before the Romans kind of took over. Because you talk about how. Paleo-Christianity was basically this illegal cult. It wasn't this accepted yeah. worldwide religion as it is now. Like, how, how did it become an illegal cult to the Romans kind of taking over and making it a worldwide religion? Nobody knows. <laughs> <laughs> no, but we, we don't have a clue. Uh, mm-hmm. We have some clues. You know, I read, I read all, the, all the, the mainstream scholars. I read what, what Rodney Stark has to say about it and Bart Ehrman at UNC Chapel Hill and, and everybody else. We have, we have an idea of, of what happened, and, and clearly Constantine in the fourth century AD, by decriminalizing it, sort of paved the way for it to become the biggest religion in the world, which it is, uh, with more than a couple billion followers. Uh, but the question I had, and the unanswered question, is how does this illegal religion, it was illegal. Mm. The Christians were rounded up and um, dramatically thrown to the lions. We don't know how, how true that is or not, but you know, we know that there were martyrs for the faith, and we know that the Romans were very suspicious of this cult, the same way they were suspicious about the cult of Bacchus or Dionysius, uh, because the two had a lot in common. Mm. Uh, these were people meeting in secret, uh, using some kind of uh, secret sacrament 
to commune with their God. I mean, the Christians were accused of cannibalism for good reason, because that's what the Gospels say. It's a right. guy named Jesus asking his closest followers to feast on his flesh and blood. Mm. Uh, that, that, that's, that, that's a weird, it's a weird idea today, by the way. What, what, what do you think that about. means, by the way? What, what, is, what do you just mean by eat my flesh? Or what do you think, anyway? I think, I think he meant eat my flesh. I think he meant drink my blood. And, and I, I, you know, as a Catholic, I was taught to take that very, very literally. Uh, wow. it's, uh, I mean, that, that's what the doctrine of transubstantiation is. You are literally drinking the blood of the God, like a vampire. You are feasting on blood. Uh, you know, it's not a metaphor, oh. according to the church. It's, it's, that is not a metaphor. I mean, so 69% of American Catholics do not believe that, that doctrine, uh, which is a problem for the church, because I see it as the central doctrine of the church. I think um, in the Gospel of John, when Jesus says that, I think that he is offering an immortality potion, uh, not too different from what Dionysus was offering to his followers. Uh, it wasn't the first time in history the idea was floated, by the way. The followers of Dionysus for centuries would feast on the blood uh, of goats or, or other sacrificial animals or conceive of the wine as blood. I mean, like 500 years before the Gospel of John, there are Greek writers referring to wine as the Haima Bachiu, the blood of Bacchus, the blood of Dionysus. I mean, it wasn't a new idea. So when Jesus said that, I think he was tapping in to a very pagan, very Greek, very graphic ritual, whereby you sucked down some, some bloody wine and became, and became a god. That's what Jesus says. You drink this and you become a god. You become me. You live in me and I in you, he says in the Gospel of John 6.56. Everybody should look up John 6.56. Wow. Yeah, I'm, I'm just started the, the New Testament. It took me a while to get through the, the old one. So, <laughs> <laughs> One the, step at a time. Man. The, the prequel, the prequel, yeah. Uh, what, what is the line between paganism and Christianity? Did they actually get a lot from paganism or is this heresy? Like what, what's going on? Because there's so many uh, yeah. opposing views on this. Yeah. No, I, I didn't answer your, your last question. Is is what was happening? Oh, sorry, I'm the... getting, getting ahead of myself. Sorry. No, but, go, that's, go no, but actually, yeah. that, that, I, I'm going to answer both at the same okay. time. So oh, the, <laughs> in Paleo Christianity, those so in those 300 years or so, like between the death of Jesus and Constantine, mm-hmm. we have 300 years, give or take, um, where there's no churches. I think that that's worth pointing out that that mm. the earliest Christians uh, didn't go to a basilica or a church in the light of day to feast on their blood. Uh, it was illegal, right? So what they were doing is they were going into catacombs to commune with their dead, uh, where the living and dead would interact in a very Roman ritual called the refrigerium, uh, which is documented in the pagan Roman world. The Christians take it up and do the same thing. They descend into these catacombs. They're mixing wine, drinking wine, and communing with the dead and some kind of God and communing with the saints and the martyrs. Uh, and if they're not underground, they're in, they're in homes, in private homes, celebrating the Mass. The early Mass was in homes and catacombs. Uh, there's, no, there's no New Testament. There's no canonical New Testament. There wasn't any wide agreement over which books went in and which didn't. That didn't happen until later. So when you ask me, like, what was this Christianity, this illegal Christianity, it was a bunch of friends and family getting together in relatively small groups um, in dining rooms and crypts. Uh, to 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 feast on bloody wine. Whoa! Yeah, I could see how, from the Romans' perspective, that seemed a bit creepy. Drinking blood in the <laughs> crypts. <laughs> wow. 
Exactly. No, when you put it that way, it all makes sense. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, man, that's so, that's so crazy. Um, what, like... Actually, because there, there's a lot of, like, from the fundamental Christian view, well, a lot of them that I've spoken to, they'll say that psychedelics are basically demonic tools, right, that open you up to possession by spirits and even in the bible it says that right. satan masquerades right. and an angel of light like how, how did psychedelics become like the origin of this religion for it to be so revered against hmm. yeah that's a that's a hard one i mean i can't i can't say definitively if 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 uh, if i'm talking to the archaeobotanists and archaeochemists i can't say that there were psychedelics involved you know that, that yeah. that's kind of why i wrote i wrote this book this book stands as proof of concept, uh, that it's it's at least worth studying. Mm. Uh, and the reason I say that is because what I did find uh, in this old archaeobotany journal from 20 years ago uh, was this psychedelic wine outside Pompeii in um, in an old pharmacy. That's how the archaeologist refers to it, a pharmacy called the Villa Vesuvio, which is dated to mm. 79 AD, just after the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. So everything there was perfectly preserved. And what was preserved inside these giant dolia, these giant uh, storage vessels, was a bunch of grape seeds that seems to have been a wine uh, in which other seeds were found, like the seeds of opium, cannabis, henbane, black nightshade, and a bunch of lizard bones. Wow. Um, lizard bones, did you say? Lizard bones. <laughs> okay. over, over, over 60 fragments of lizard bones. So, you know... This is the kind of shit that people were mixing up and potentially <laughs> drinking, potentially for a sacramental purpose. Now, we can't say that was Christian, but it's in the right place at the right time. It's hmm. 79 AD when the first generation of Christians would have come to Italy. It's in the right place, Magna Graecia, Great Greece, just south of Rome, where the earliest Christians started to assemble. Uh, the only at Rome, where Constantine was building churches, by the way, uh, was Naples and, and the surrounding area. So it was a real stronghold uh, for Christians. What we need to do is go back there and find more chalices uh, to really prove the point. But I think you can sense that there was a pharmacological expertise in antiquity. And this is some of the very first evidence that's been reported on, you know, like, like a big level uh, to to at least uh, put some credit to a crazy hypothesis. Yeah, is uh so they've found actual physical evidence of cannabis. They found seeds. seeds. Yeah, they, they found wow. they found seeds and actual seeds that belong to opium, cannabis, henbane, and black nightshade. You know, we're not not sure what to make of it. Uh, but this 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 sample was taken in the in the late nineties. Uh, this Italian archaeobotanist did all the analysis. Uh, she's originally from Naples, got her PhD in the UK, went back to this site, did this great science, left the discipline because it's no way to make a living. And she's doing something completely different in the UK right now. I called her on Skype about six weeks ago, and she told me she has the sample in her garage. Wow. That's, <laughs> wow, man, that's amazing. Uh, is, is this where the term pharmakia came from then? Because... It I heard that that means like either drug or witchcraft. Is it both? Is it is drug and witchcraft the same thing? Is it interchangeable? What does pharmakia uh, mean? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, pharmakia is kind of like witchcraft from pharmakos, which means drug. In Latin, it's somewhat similar. It's venefici is like the poison or drug, and beneficia is like the witch or, or sorceress. Yeah, all this is kind of um, interchangeable. 
Hmm. And why why do you think? I know you you said that we don't really know, but uh, is there any thoughts about how the Romans started to accept Christianity? Was it because they genuinely started to believe in it, or was it really that they just wanted to use this religion as a kind of a power grab to influence hmm. people to follow them? Oh yeah, I mean, if you asked ten early Christian scholars, you would get ten different answers on that. Wow, uh, I think. I think, um, you know, we don't know, we don't know what, I mean, Constantine, you know, he has this vision in the heavens, um, and, uh, he, he interprets it, we're told as a sign from God that Christianity is the true religion. Um, uh, his family felt differently, or at least his family had a more mixed reaction to Christianity. Uh, and, you know, later Roman emperors, we're up and down on this Christian pagan spectrum until we get to Theodosius, at which point in the late fourth century, Eleusis is destroyed, and a lot of these pagan traditions are destroyed. It, it wasn't from one day to the next. Mm-hmm. Um, I think throughout the fourth century, it's this process of acculturation and Christianity won, but I, I think, I mean, even you intuited it. I mean, it wasn't like this totally foreign thing. Uh, the church fathers, and, uh, and, and the church itself kind of just steps into the shoes of the Roman emperors, right? We, we know about the donation of Constantine and all these, uh, all these uh, phenomena that, that were happening. Uh, you know, you go from one all-male patriarchal tradition of the Roman emperors to, to the popes and the cardinals and bishops and everything that follows. It's not really a mystery why, why men are the governing enterprise here. Wow, yeah. Well, and like you said, that women had a very luminary role a very important role in, in these traditions. So, yeah, I guess it kind of means. Yeah, but even my girlfriend was joking around like the men just came along, and be like, "Yeah, yeah, you women, you're too emotional. You need to get out of here," you know. And then they kind of just <laughs> took over. <laughs> but yeah, she could be right. She could, could be right. She could be like, uh, "You, you know, you speak too much. All right, get out of here. We're gonna, we're taking over here, and get get rid of these drugs," you know. <laughs> Yeah, uh, what, can you uh, just explain? Because I'm I'm kind of just researching the the differences now between Catholicism and Eastern Orthodox. Uh, so I'm I'm very new at this. So, I, so forgive me for not knowing too much. But what's the main differences between these two? Is Eastern Orthodox like the old, like the original Christianity? Well, if <laughs> I'm going to start blaspheming, if if you ask them. <laughs> If you ask them, absolutely. Uh, I mean, they, first of all, they retained the Greek, didn't they? Let's, let's let's start there. Okay. I mean, why why the Catholics decided that Latin was suddenly sacred? I mean, I'm 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 not convinced. Uh, but they chose Latin, the other chose Greek, and the other stayed in the East, as we know. I mean, but then if you think about it doctrinally, I mean, you know, from like a layman's perspective, you know, the ten thousand foot view, there aren't that many differences. You'll you'll see more differences between like a Catholic and an evangelical, at least in my mind, than between a Catholic and an Orthodox. And I'm sure nobody would agree with what I just said. But, you know, when you look at the um, veneration of the Virgin Mary, for example, that's something you find in both. Um, I mean, the the Pope is the obvious sticking point. This infallible Pope in Rome um, is very different from the Patriarch, Patriarch Bartholomew uh, in Constantinople. Um, that, that That's, I think it's a question of leadership. There's a lot of doctrinal nuances that we can get into but that, that that that's the crux of it is is who's the head of the church you know who who follows in saint peter's footsteps hmm so is it that orthodox doesn't have a pope how does that, how does that uh, well, work they have a patriarch they have a patriarch who who um you know patriarch. he's kind of 
Patriarch Bartholomew is, yeah. is the head of the of the Orthodox Church, and he's kind of like a pope. He's not the pope. He's 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 the patriarch, which means that uh, he's the the fatherly figure. He's the 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 patriarchos right. uh, of, of of all the Orthodox. So um, again, from afar, kind of similar, but the patriarch, for example, is not infallible, and in all these uh, all these different traditions that arose around uh, Roman Catholicism. Right. Because from what I understand, there's a lot of oral traditions that gets passed down, at least when you're talking about Eastern Orthodox and Catholicism, whereas in Protestant, as far as I understand it, they're all about sola scriptura, right? Just all you need is the Bible. You don't need any of that kind of stuff. Well, what what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I, I mean, it's I had a conversation earlier today with someone about this. Uh, I feel like every... Um, Every reformation that takes place is always an attempt to get back to the roots of mm-hmm. what Jesus was all about. And so sola scriptura, the idea of looking to the to the Bible and nothing else, kind of makes sense, right? I mean, if you think about it, uh, uh, it starts with Martin Luther and the Reformation in the 16th century. I mean, largely as a result of the, the excesses of the Catholic Church and corruption and normal human things that happen in any institution. And uh, you know, Martin Luther was sick of it. And so he posted his 95 theses, and the idea during the humanism of the time was it was ad fontes, getting back to the source that I wrote about in the book. So, I mean, like, I don't know, methodologically, it, it kind of makes sense. You want to, you know, cut out the fat and just, you know, go back to what's been recorded in the divinely revealed scriptures. It, may, it, it makes sense to a certain extent. If you're doing that, I don't know why you wouldn't go and investigate every other scripture that survived and that was haphazardly omitted. From, from the New Testament, like the, the Gnostic literature and the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. And, uh, and, you know, going even beyond that, why wouldn't you investigate the oral tradition, right? Not everything was written down. We know that. Exactly. Even in the Gospel of Mark, you know, Jesus, uh, first of all, Jesus doesn't write anything down, which, uh, which doesn't help. Uh, and <laughs> it doesn't help, yeah. I wish he'd write something down. They didn't, they didn't have cell phones. He, he wasn't vlogging the experience and uploading it to YouTube. Well, that would have helped even more. Yeah, this, yeah that would have helped even more. Uh, but we don't have that. And so in the absence of that, what do you do? Uh, I think you look at as much evidence as you possibly can, mm. including archaeochemical evidence and archaeobotanical evidence. Why wouldn't you want to know everything about what was happening there to try and get to, to the roots of it? So in many ways, I titled the intro to my book, The New Reformation, because by looking into the Latin and the Greek and the very Greek world in which Christianity uh, both arose and developed, uh, I think there are there are answers there. I think that that we're just beginning to unlock some of the real mysteries, the secrets of mm. early Christianity. Hmm. You mentioned the the other gospels, like the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. What what did that go into, and why wasn't that included in the in the New Testament? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it was it was neglected. It was it, um, there was there was a campaign by the church fathers, beginning as early as the second century, to to limit the gospels to four because it, it nicely aligned with the four directions of the earth. That's actual reasoning that was given. Uh, and then you know later on in the late fourth and into the fifth centuries, these councils get together and decide which books make sense and which don't and. They weren't very happy with the Gnostic Gospels. Uh, they weren't very happy with with a Jesus in the Gospel of Thomas, um, who mm. talks a little differently from the Jesus of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And Thomas, 
Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is spread upon the earth and we do not see it, that it's here and now. This idea of accepting Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior and looking forward to an afterlife uh, is not the Jesus of Thomas's gospel. Thomas says that, uh, you know, we are essentially carriers of that spark of the divine, that there's a piece of Jesus inside us and that we can share this communion with, uh, with Jesus uh, by recognizing the eternity that is here and now. It's, you know, it's, it's mystical stuff, it's esoteric stuff, and um, I don't think there was any grand conspiracy. I, I don't think that some of this material lends itself well to organized religion. That, that's how Elaine Pagels at Princeton talks about it. I mean, you know, part of the, the truth is that these mystery traditions suffocated under the, the weight of their own secrecy. I mean, th- these were, you know, little illegal cults and hidden ingredients and secret sacraments and all this oral tradition and stuff like that dies pretty, mm. pretty easily, pretty quickly. That's what happened in the fourth century. It died. Mm. Do you believe that the Gospel of Thomas is canon or heresy? <laughs> I I think I'm on fairly good scholarly ground if I parrot Elaine Pagels, and I th- I'm I'm not sure about this, uh, but she says that you know she would, it's one of her favorite books, the Gospel mm. of Thomas, and 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 she delivers a beautiful translation of it and writes a great book about it. Uh, I I'm I'm happy saying it's it's one of my favorite books of all time. Wow, that was actually the first gospel that I read ever. A, a few years ever? ago ever yeah because I, I never read the bible until like this year because i'm like you know what i should probably read it now i'm like re- really deep into it because i think because of this quarantine i can't wow. travel i can't go anywhere so i'm like yeah i'm just gonna read you the found bible jesus in the quarantine yeah you i did jesus. i did actually <laughs> <laughs> but there, there is a lot of similarities like i remember reading the gospel of thomas and a lot of it is very similar to what's said in the in the gospel of like Matthew and John and all and all the, the original four, but obviously there are obvious there are some fundamental differences, like you said, like we have the kingdom of heaven within and we have that divine spark. I think that's a big big difference and to the establishment that's a that's a no no, it seems. I think that that's a fair way to put it. Yeah. And that's a, that's a fair way to put it. So, but is there evidence that that was actually written by Thomas, or was it some? Like, what what do you? Oh, thoughts we, on that? we have we have no idea. We have no idea. Um, we have no idea who wrote any of the Gospels. We don't know mm. if John was a he or a she, uh, or they. Oh. Uh, we don't we don't know much about this. Um, again, that there are different people who are who will argue with that, uh, but but the, at the end of the day, we just don't know who drafted these Gospels for what reason. Hmm. And like with most of the scholars that you've talked to, what are their, their what's the general consensus on psychedelics? <laughs> um, in early Christianity? Yeah, sure. Um, one of the, my prouder moments since the book's release is a great review from Candida Moss, who wrote for the Daily Beast. She wrote the first review. Okay. And the title was something like, were the earliest Christian using psychedelics? which I think is the point. It's not, was Jesus on LSD? Was Jesus high? Was the Holy Grail spiked with drugs? I think the uh, the scholarly idea I try to pursue is whether the earliest Christians, and only some of them at that, were they attracted to this? And I think if you talk about it in those terms, someone like Candida Moss read through the book, uh, you know, trained at, at Yale Divinity School and no slouch, 
when it comes to the New Testament. Uh, I think she's willing to see that there are arguments on, on both sides, obviously, but that it's, it's something worth pursuing from the scientific vantage. Um, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Charlie Stang at Harvard Divinity School, is um, hosting a series of lectures all year long um, on campus, virtually, uh, about psychedelics and the future of religion. He's a bit more skeptical. Okay. Which I think is great, by the, yeah. by the way. It's good I, to I be skeptical. Yeah. And that's why, that's why I like Charlie so much. And so, Charlie, if you're listening to this, uh, that, that's, that, this is why I like talking to you. Uh, because uh, I think the data has to lead the way. I think the archaeochemistry has to lead the way. There's lots of circumstantial evidence, which, you know, frankly, um, on its own is not that compelling or convincing. Uh, but we, we're living in a time that if something like archaeochemistry and my colleague Andrew Code at MIT, if he gets the funding that he needs and deserves to look into this stuff, you know, chalices are gonna are gonna start popping up, uh, and these organic samples he's sitting on to the tune of 5,000 of them are gonna start being tested, and we're gonna start to put together the pieces of the best kept secret in history. How about that? Yeah. Wow. Uh, well, it seems to me like like you said how a lot of atheists will even turn. Maybe not necessarily religious, but definitely at least be more open that there is a greater reality out there or in there, however you want to frame it. But it just it makes a lot of sense that there would have to be some sort of a psychedelic compound involved, at least in these early religions. In would you say that psychedelics have an origin in all major religions, like like let's say Islam or even the ancient Egyptians or any of these sort of cultures? It's a hypothesis worth investigating. How about that? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I can say I can say on fair territory that visionary experiences right. seem to be seem to be at the root of all these faiths, and I'm on safe ground there because again, I'm just I'm parroting um, Brother David Steindl Rosh, the great Benedictine monk. Uh, he says that you know without mystical experience, it's pretty hard to start a religion. Yeah. Um, whether it's it's Moses and the burning bush or Paul on the road to Damascus, or Peter in Acts, who's depicted in a trance state, or Muhammad uh, in these uh, conversations with the angel Gabriel uh, recorded in the Quran, uh, you know, the, uh, or, or Joseph Smith in Mormonism, right, has these, these visions. Uh, I think that it's, uh, it seems to be part and parcel of how these, these faiths get going. Uh, the, the big question is, what happens after that? Mm. And I, th I think, personally, uh, where psychedelics come in, is I think that if they are used, it's a big if, but if they come into use, I think that it's an attempt by these followers, um, and maybe the early early followers, I think it's an attempt by them to recapture the story of mm. Moses and his bush, or Paul being struck blind on the road to Damascus, um, and saying that he was in touch with Jesus. You know, Paul never met Jesus. He was in auditory, hallucinatory, Oh. communication with Jesus. This is this is why Paul's writing his letters, right? He has this crazy experience where he's telepathically communing with Jesus. This is the New Testament. This is the the, the greatest evangelist of of the Christian wow. faith. This is where, this is where Paul finds his inspiration. So to say that it was drugs, I don't know, but if you know that story and you're hearing or reading Paul's letters, uh Can you go into that? Stuff, so, sorry to cut you off, but can you go into that story? I'd love to. <laughs> yeah. Cuz I haven't got up yeah, yeah, I haven't got, I haven't got up to that part yet. So. Oh man, you're this. And, and for people, who, yeah, just for people who's listening, you know. Bible for you, man. Yeah, come on, read. Let's do a, a Bible story time now. <laughs> 
So let's let's have a, so the the quick uh, the quick 101 on the New Testament is that there's these four gospels that we're talking about but most of it are Paul's letters and Paul is just a, a normal guy out there living his life and he's he's making this uh, this trip to Damascus and he's struck temporarily blind by this this heaven sent light and mm-hmm. later he talks about being caught up in the third heaven um, and all this poetic language about what happened to him. But what, what happens is some kind of ecstatic, uh, visionary, uh, altered state of consciousness uh, where he is introduced not to a flesh and blood Jesus. Jesus is dead. Uh, he's introduced to uh, a Jesus um, whom he feels is impelling him to spread this faith. And so Paul starts to write these letters. Um, in the late 40s or in the 50s, really, in the 50s, he's writing these letters to the Corinthians, amongst others. Um, and this is from a guy who never met Jesus, you know. Wow. Uh, and so, the, I mean, the, the, but this is how the faith is born. The faith is born on on these altered states of awareness. And even in the early communities, um, drugs or not, we know that there's there's prophecy and 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 speaking in tongues and all this inspirational stuff happening at these congregations um maybe it was a funky eucharist maybe it was these other funky practices that were happening but whatever was happening was something very very powerful where where they felt they felt that jesus came back that jesus was still there that jesus was risen had died was risen and was still there and came to commune with them in some supernatural way Wow. So this happened like, or do they believe that this happened physically or was this like a metaphor? What, what's the general consensus on the resurrection? I, I don't think people live and die for metaphors. Uh, <laughs> maybe they do. Joseph, Joseph Campbell is famous for saying that people are dying for metaphors all over the place. Yeah. This, yeah. Is, how, <laughs> this is how religious wars get going. But when, when I think about the earliest generations of Christians, um, there were traditions at the time uh, that seemed to have been direct confrontations with the God. Mm. Um, Why you would abandon that for a metaphorical communion with the God, I don't know. It doesn't doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't mean that psychedelics were the one and only uh, thing to make that happen. But what, what I do think was happening was something very powerful, very direct, very experiential, uh, that that convinced these people that Jesus was the real deal. Mm. Well, like you said, I don't think people would die for a metaphor. I I certainly wouldn't. And a lot of these these <laughs> disciples, di- like knowingly spreading the gospel of Jesus, they knew that they were going to get killed for it, and they did. So that says I don't know what that says. Like I'm not saying that this means that he physically rose because I don't know. I wasn't there two thousand years ago, but it says a lot. That's all I'll say. Yeah, it's a, uh, yeah. That that's all. That's all we know. Mm. I mean, the people put their life on the line for something. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned uh, Paul being struck blind, and this kind of just reminded me of something you said in the book of blind people having these near death experiences, which triggered these visionary experiences. Do you think that is there right. any study, or or do you know of any blind people taking psychedelics and having visionary experiences, and what does this mean? No, but I'm going to propose that to my researcher colleagues. I think it's it's worth investigating. Uh, I, I I found a stray reference to congenitally blind participants who reported some kind of 
hypnagogic uh, visual imagery um, under psychedelics. It's from a very long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, the the paper that that you reference on on near death studies that that's more recent. It's a really fascinating paper uh, by Kenneth Ring and Sharon Cooper. Uh, you should uh, everyone should should Google that and and look up that paper. Um, it's uh, it's fascinating stuff. The idea that that blind people who've never seen uh, or at one point maybe in their life had seen and and then had an accident in one case, uh, they had these really crisp visual hallucinations wow. during their near death experience, which is really really difficult to explain. It's like, yeah. What, what does that mean? Is that like tapping into a different part of the brain, or like does it kind of does it suggest that psychedelics, it's not just like your visual cortex, it's maybe like you're tapping into something else, like what's going on there? Well, I mean, if you've ever had a dream, you, you know that it's not your eyeballs producing everything that's happening there. So it's, uh, it's, uh, there, there's the sense that consciousness is, is far more mysterious than we, than we give it credit for. Uh, and that you know, when we think of these visions, or tapping into alternate realities. If you have a heroic dose of DMT, uh, whether it's real or not, we don't know. But you know, it has these effects on people that are, are long-lasting and powerful mm. and, and pervasive. And the psychedelic experience seems to tap into the same kind of thing that happens in near death or other out-of-body experiences or other shamanic uh, initiations. And so, when you look at consciousness as a thing, uh, epistemologically. And ontologically, you know, there's something very weird that we, you know, there's some, just something very strange happening there that doesn't involve the eyeballs. Hmm. Definitely, definitely something weird going on. Do, you, and this kind of maybe tells us a lot about the nature of consciousness. You know, what is it? Is it some byproduct of the brain, or is that the fundamental reality? I mean, obviously, this is a conversation that we can't seem to grab a hold of. Maybe we can't. I don't know what's going on there. What What are your thoughts on? the nature of consciousness do you believe that it's like a byproduct of the brain or do you think it's something a little bit more mysterious than that um uh it's it's that's a big one that's a i'm not sure what i believe i look (laughs) i look for data i look i look for data uh i'm not sure i don't you know it's uh i find it unconvincing that um that consciousness is an epiphenomenon of this three pound lump of jelly Mm. sitting in in our skulls this this three pound lump of jelly that is capable of uh contemplating the vastness of interstellar space contemplating itself contemplating on the vastness of interstellar space what we call self-awareness self-reflexive consciousness uh it's it's a goddamn mystery uh is is what it is and to think that it arises from a lump of jelly i don't know or to think that we're just a bunch of blood and guts um, that that go back to dust on, on our death. It's it's not what people who experience psychedelics tell us. Is all I can say. Mm. Whether it's real or not, I have no idea if there's life after death. It's 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 unprovable to date. Uh, but folks who have these experiences offer really intriguing data. And the ancient Greeks at Eleusis were 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 offering very compelling testimony to suggest that they believe something for a reason. Right. They weren't they weren't you didn't go to, to Eleusis and meet a metaphor. Right. Right. Back to your back to your point. Yeah. We're yeah, not talking yeah. about metaphor. I mean, these people said that they conquered death, not metaphorically. They said they went to Eleusis as a human being and they left Eleusis as a god or a mm. goddess. And I think the earliest Christians um, went to mass, their first mass as a human being, and they left as Jesus. They left a part of Jesus. 
Um, I think that's how these faiths survive. That's how these traditions survive. Die before you die, right? Die, die before you die. I mean, as in as literal a way as possible. By the way, not metaphorically, not just kind of uh, let's pretend I'm dead for a couple of minutes. It's you know, you have to believe. This is what Bill Richards at Hopkins says. He says that the experience of death in the modern psychedelic experiments, that it's it has to be acutely and terrifyingly real. You have to believe that you are dying, that everything you've ever thought you are, whether it's the body or the mind or your ego or what you think I is, that's dying. It's dead. It's gone forever. You've been annihilated, like made non-existent. Oh, Unless yeah. you believe that, there's what are you? Where's the rebirth? Unless you die, where's the, where, 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 how are you born again, right? Yeah, man. Like you said, it's, uh, I've had that experience before, and it is terrifying. It's not like a metaphorical death. It's like you literally feel like you're dying in every sense of the word. Can you tell, can you tell me about that? Can I ask you a question? Yeah, go for it. Yeah. Just, uh, I'm, I'm, curious, I'm curious about that. Uh, so I've had, I've had a couple. One where I resisted every way, every step of the way where I was like kind of kicking and screaming and kind of felt like my physical body was dissolving. My ego was the sense of self was getting shred up into pieces. And I just, it was like a, it was a little bit of a psychotic kind of trip. Just like, no, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. Cause I had to, I felt like I was literally going to die. I didn't want to leave my family behind. So a lot of grief and attachment started to come up. Really? Uh, yeah. Yeah. For real. But I've also had an experience where I had, my first 5-MeO DMT experience with the Bufo Alvarius toad. And that was just... Whew. The best way I can explain it is that it was... Uh, merging with God, I guess. It was like a, a brief moment of cosmic paradise. But it was like I was everything, but not no one. But then when I came back, I thought... Again, it literally felt like eternity. So then when I came back to this human form, it was like it actually... A very big sigh of relief like oh man i'm so glad to be back here you know and um it, it's it's ineffable man like again like i i know it's a cop-out word to say but it's so beyond human language but i completely agree that it can be very very terrifying because you have to let go of everything that you've ever known and loved but when you come back it is like a like a rebirth you know you have a like a new lens like you're what you're seeing reality through the hd goggles and just seeing it through like a, what I would imagine like a child seeing life for the first time, just with complete awe, you know, assuming that you allow it to uh, take over and you let go. Because if you resist and you go kicking and screaming, that's when the, the trip can go really dark and it will force you to let go. But if you allow it to I, do its I thing. listen to you now. This is great, man. <laughs> uh, and it's one of those experiences where, it was like life-changing, profound and amazing and, and all this kind of stuff. But it's also like, I'm not doing this again for a very long time. It's not, it's not an experience that you want, you want to chase again and again and again because it's just too much. It, it can be too much. It's like opening Pandora's box, you know. Like maybe before you do it, it seems like, yeah, I want knowledge of the infinite. But then when you actually <laughs> open the box, it's like, yeah, it can be quite overwhelming. And sometimes it takes a very, very long time to really uh, integrate these experiences, especially into grounded reality. So I kind of learned my lesson one, uh, it was a few years ago, I had like a brutal existential crisis from opening that Pandora's box. So I went many, many years without 
touching psychedelics again but it was it was good wow yeah 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 but again that was just me i I think that's why with when it comes with psychedelics i would recommend that people wait until they're a certain age and not do it too young because like when uh a good rule of thumb i'll say is at least 25 even 30 would be a good one because at least at that age you know who you are you know what i mean whereas when you're really young if you're 18 and you don't you're still you don't even know what your purpose is you don't know why you're here on this earth and then psychedelics and just like overwhelm you you know it depends again it, it's a how old, hey how old were you on your first high dose oh uh, so my first high dose was like ayahuasca was mm, this would have been almost six years ago 20 i gotta think about how old i am uh <laughs> 22 23 oh wow yeah wow. something like that that's young that's young yeah yeah it is pretty young but this was a time when i was like really like severely depressed and anxious and like I was going through like a really dark road and I actually heard um Grant Hancock on the Joe Rogan experience he was one of the major catalysts which inspired me to go to the Amazon and try this <laughs> ayahuasca <laughs> yeah yeah it was it was really cuz I remember him talking about how he used to be addicted to cannabis for like two decades or something like that and ayahuasca was the only thing that kind of ripped that addiction from him it showed him the pain that he's causing his loved ones and yeah ayahuasca is like pretty yes. pretty full on but i want to yeah if you can pass on the message give him my thanks because like he was definitely a, a very big key on on me starting this journey which actually inspired me to even start this channel in the first place so oh wow we finally get to the point here tom yeah yeah exactly reconciliation i guess which is funny that even just now going back into christianity which i never thought i'd dive back into but it's like wow man there's so much so much there you know so uh man you're gonna you're gonna blow the world Tom. it's fantastic <laughs> uh what so because you said that you, you that like the psychedelic sacrament that you're most interested in is psilocybin mushrooms like do you have any kind of date or are you just kind of feeling it out as it goes along or do you have any plans on when oh, you're going to do it no. tom these these are mysteries these are <laughs> mysteries uh you know two two weeks ago i didn't know that oregon was going to be the first jurisdiction on planet earth to to regulate psilocybin and now it is as a, i mean last week was a watershed wow. moment in the united states it, it, it's been described by a colleague of mine as literally the most significant reform to our nation's failed drug policies in a generation. And it's hard to dis- disagree with that. NBC News called it a tipping point. There were all these states that legalized either medical or recreational cannabis. But I mean, Oregon decriminalized all drugs across the board and and set up the, the prospect of, of regulated psilocybin clinics, uh, which ought to come online around 2022. Um, they'll be the first in the world. Wow. Uh, regulated regulated at a at a wide state level. That's like incredible. That. Uh, it's and and that is incredible. The the war on drugs is screeching to a halt as it should because it's stupid. Yep. Lawyer, uh you know, n- n- none of these resources um ought to be uh, wasted um putting uh drug users, abusers, pushers into the criminal justice system because it's not where they belong. Uh and I can make the point very quickly by talking about tobacco. I don't know many people my age or your age in the US 
who, who smoke cigarettes. And the reason is not because we sent a bunch of people to jail and locked up tobacco farmers in the South. It's because that we went out there and we talked about cancer and we talked about health risks and right. uh, we talked about what it does to your uh, to the inside of your body. Putting dead uh, babies on we, packets. And that, yeah, no, Europe is crazy, man. I love, I love going, I love cigarette packages. And the, no, the best part is that people don't give a shit, which is even funnier. They sit there with like, you know, these crazy images, just chain smoking. Uh, but in, I mean, in the US, the message got through is all I can say. And, you know, I don't really know anybody who smokes on a regular basis. Mm. Uh, but, um, uh, but with cannabis, you know, the rates haven't plummeted. You know, it's still easy to find cannabis. And so if the goal is to keep it away from kids, or you know, um, or, or other segments of the population that shouldn't be doing it, or people predisposed to psychiatric conditions, etc. Same with psychedelics. What we should be doing are are talking to people, educating people, treating people, and, th- and that's what's happening in Oregon. And I honestly think it's going to be a model for the entire country. Mm. And and I think it's going to happen sooner than later. So it's a very very roundabout way of answering your question, which is that I think it's gonna happen naturally. Uh, you know, Oregon's gonna come online, another state, maybe a handful of states, just like we've seen with cannabis. And eventually there's gonna be some kind of federally regulated system in place uh, where this stuff is relatively available. And mm. at that point, you know, Brian is calling his priest and he's saying, you know, uh, the, there's this thing, it's legal, it's legal. And, um, you know, uh, I've been researching the mysteries like my entire adult life. And here's how I think it should go. I think I should spend two years preparing for it. And I think that I should go into deep prayer and meditation and do all the emotional and psychological work it takes uh, to consider this the most potentially transformative moment of my life, aside from meeting my wife and, and watching the birth of my daughters. I mean, it, it's, it, it's yeah. supposed to be something like that it's supposed to be at least a testimony that i mean listening to you it is talking to the volunteers at Hopkins. yeah well i mean so now that tom told me yeah you know, i'm not i'm not gonna wake up one day and fly to portland and just go for it what i'm gonna do is is prepare properly uh and and have some sacred guides along the way because i think the evidence is there that this is potentially something very very old and very mm. very sacred uh and very very natural think we're missing that sacred container so i feel part of my job is to see if there's any way we can resuscitate some of this uh, some of these lessons from antiquity yeah uh, like yeah, i would agree that it's like in the top five kind of most profound moments and it's weird because it's ironic because like yeah the experience is incredibly profound that you'd probably talk about the rest of your life but it's also makes you realize the profundity of just normal everyday life. At least it has for me. I can't speak for everybody. And I think that's why the ritual ceremonial aspect of it is really important where really in a lot of these cultures, the psychedelics is just the cherry on the top. It's not like the main thing. It's everything leading to it and the integration, you know. How, do you mind if I ask, how did you prepare for your, your first high dose of ayahuasca? Uh, well, first was the diet. I had to like cut out all refined sugars, processed foods, and even that in and of itself was an exercise of discipline and yeah and will and all that. And I had to obviously stop alcohol. And this is when I was smoking a lot of weed, so I had to quit weed. And even that was a psychological challenge. And uh, wow. just meditate and prayer and read about these experiences. Not even just about psychedelic experiences, but 
reading about psychology, how the mind works. Like you've already done, I feel like a lot of the prep work and uh, kind of researching behind the symbologies and the the cultures and uh, and all this kind of stuff. But yeah, man, just learning about the the human mind, what uh, and how to prepare if things do go a little bit south. Like just even just knowing that not to resist and kind of letting go and breathing, having an erect straight spine, like because sometimes like you might have a, like a really tough experience and your first reaction might be to kind of just go down or be in a fetal position and just hmm. even just breathing into your diaphragm and having a straight spine wow. is, is something it's so simple but it's one of the the most profound practices especially during uh turbulent experiences <laughs> that's a good note when when in when in doubt go for erection that's yeah a good exactly note. exactly that's a good note tom i'm gonna remember that when i'm high off my mind erection, someday, yeah. in the jungle erection erection <laughs> exactly breathe into the diaphragm yeah uh <laughs> well like you said before man like education is key because i used to be a cigarette smoker for about 10 years it's been i think eight years since i've had a cigarette now but just that, just educate, educate, education, man, definitely. Uh, here in Australia, we go, I think we have the highest cigarette prices in the world, or at least in the top three, would have to. I feel wow. like a packet of cigarettes nowadays is like $40. It's what? crazy. What? Yeah. What? No, I'm not joking. <laughs> and, and people still smoke? Yep, people still smoke. And I think every six months, they increase the prices. And they show you like dead oh. babies, gangrene foot. Like the most horrible, like horror movie esque commercials about it, but then with alcohol, it's the opposite. They show you like sexy girls and like really pretty packaging and stuff. Right. Yeah. Fair yeah. Dinkum. Yeah. Here, right. <laughs> fair dinkum, mate. Yeah. In Australia, though, actually, it's funny because with cigarettes uh, now, every single brand of cigarettes have to have the exact same font. It has to have like this ugly beigey brown color. Like you can't show any color, any nice font. And even the cigarettes is like behind a wall where you can't see. It's like gone really <laughs> next level. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I'm sure, I'm sure your audience knows this and is really bored listening to me learn about the tobacco industry in, in Australia. <laughs> but I find it fascinating. Yeah, man. Oh, actually, ironically, I think maybe only 5% of my audience is from Australia. Where's your audience? Well, I think mostly from the U.S., I, I feel like it's just probably because there's more people there, yeah, or Europe, yeah. No, there's not many Australians. Maybe that's, that's why. Great. Yeah, maybe they just the Australian accent is like foreign to them, so it's a little bit more interesting. And the Australians are just wise. sick of it. You, you sound wiser than you probably are. That's why. <laughs> I don't know about that, but uh, actually, no. You just mentioned actually because about Oregon, uh, you know, legalizing psilocybin. Uh, it's funny because the the U.S. kind of started the war on drugs, so it's sort of like this poetic full circle moment, you know. Yeah, it. they should be the ones to stop it. Exactly. Uh, frankly, because it's been exported all over the world to great detriment uh, to to families everywhere you look, and and I think it's 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 time, and the international treaties will follow. Uh, they're already uh, in 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 a state of kind of uncertainty. When you look at uh, uh, the country I'm in right now, for example in Uruguay or in Canada, by legalizing cannabis at the national level, we're already in breach of a few different international conventions. And so, I mean, things are just going to have to change uh, as, as we become more sophisticated 
about these substances, which is not to say that, uh, you know, um, we're being liberal about it or, you know, free love and free drugs for all. But, you know, if, if you want to protect people, that's what it comes to. If you want to promote social justice, mm. that there, there's, a, there's, a, there's another way here. And, and I think it's coming to a close very, very quickly. Yeah. Where do you see the future of psychedelics in culture in 10 years, let's say? Okay, so uh, it's it's impossible to predict, but uh, you can fairly predict that the, there will be these licensed regulated retreat centers um, in several different states. And, and I think that within five years, uh, that psilocybin at least will probably be approved for certain clinical applications like depression, anxiety, maybe PTSD or end of life distress mm -hmm. could be the one that really leads, uh, which raises um, spiritual and religious issues. And it's funny. I talked to lots of priests, uh, in, in my journey. I talked to lot, lots of, uh, clergy and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting when you think about their job. You now I think about the mass and I think about a lot of that stuff, you know, a lot of what these people do is that is they accompany people when they're close to death. It's funny. Like all the priests I talk to are always talking to me about death and sitting with people as the, as they're dying. Mm. Uh, and it's something that like not most people, are really familiar with it. Mean, when's the last time you, you know, you saw somebody die, for example? Um, I don't think I've ever been at a, at someone's deathbed. Mm. Uh, I've been, I've been, to, I've been to lots of funerals, but you know, that, that's a part of my life that I'm, I'm missing. You know, I've, I've seen births and it's the craziest thing I've ever witnessed. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming death is, is very similar. I talked to a friend of mine who was a Greek Orthodox priest for over 30 years. And he says that without fail, without fail, every single deathbed he's been to, he's noticed a sense of acceptance and a sense of peace with wow. the awe of the mystery that was, that was before them. And the only reason I mention all this is because the death and dying process is, uh, is very mystical. And it's something that is, you know, the, the therapeutic study of psilocybin for end-of-life distress has a benefit. Um, for people. There, there was a joint study out of Hopkins and NYU that, that, that looked into this and the reduction in anxiety, for example, in cancer patients. But when you think about it, you know, people who are about to die, uh, say they're in their, their, their 80s or 90s, and say they've been going to church their whole life, you know, say they've been going to church for 50 or 60 or 70 years. Mm. Um, don't you think that someone like that might want their priest or their pastor uh, or their rabbi there next to their next to their side yeah. uh, for their for their last sacrament. Um, it's I mean that that's where I see the potential of psilocybin, for example, um, to be able to experience that mystery um, as one death and dying process. I think I think that's where you're going to find the intersection of therapeutics and religion um, in ten years. And then what happens from there? Well, if 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 the dying are availing themselves of this in a safe legal regulated way, what happens to, to churches? There's already a Santo Daime church. There's already churches that use psychedelic sacraments. Will we see more of them? Potentially, yes. It's, it's hard to see the trend going the other way. Uh, and so the best that, that we can do in the meantime is educate, listen to Tom's podcast, and, <laughs> and, and compare notes and figure out what this experience means and read as much as you can. And, and, and I think that you're going to see impact on the organized face. And hopefully, like in my case, uh, I mentioned to you, I would love for a priest to, to walk me through one of those experiences.
Yeah, I think that'd be amazing. I'd, I'd definitely be down for that because it seems like in this culture we're so we're very death phobic. You know what I mean? And that was actually the the existential crisis that I mentioned before. That, that's why it got triggered for me because I had an actual a very terrifying view on death. I mean, like I thought about it conceptually. It's like, oh yeah, whatever. That's not going to happen until later. But then when you're actually confronted by it and you're not prepared, that's when it can be terrifying. You know, and I, I saw uh, huh. Jacob's Ladder a couple of weeks ago and there was like a quote there and he said that like when you're trying to hold on and re- and resist, then devils will come to to your reality and tear it apart. But when you have peace in your heart, the devils actually end up being angels who ha- who free you from this world. And it was all about this metaphor of this guy letting go because he was like in a he was dying and the whole movie was like him going through like seeing demons and going through the dissociative psychotic trip but it was because he was kind of just holding on and afraid of death you know so when you have when you like with psychedelics is like i feel like an ultimate test of practicing letting go you know die before you die like you said so once you able to let that go and have peace in your heart then hopefully that transition will be a lot smoother especially with a priest who's experienced these kind of things and who've held people's hand through that transition so yeah it's a good reminder for me to kind mm. of sit with that the concept of death and because i haven't been around dying people it's maybe something that i should consciously do more often mm. You, you and me both. I mean, just as I'm talking about it right now, it's something, and talking to all these priests and clergy, it's something that, that really surprised me, is, is, is how distant I've been from that. That wasn't the case for our ancestors, mm. you know? Uh, there, there weren't a lot of morgues, and there weren't a lot of undertakers. I mean, this, these, were, these were family affairs. Um, I think that, that you, you were close to, to the birth and the dying process as, as one continuum. And I think that the life was richer for it. I think you were a richer person for it. 100%. Well, because now, like, we, we don't like to accept death and, like, we're, we kind of self-medicate and just trying to escape reality. I mean, just look at how our mental health epidemic is turning into and especially how... Mm-hmm. I, I don't understand how we can give someone years of prescribed antidepressants, but then we throw someone in jail for taking magic mushrooms. Like, it's just... It's that's heresy. That's true heresy. But you know, I, we're learning. We're learning. I guess it's part of the human journey. I guess the hero's journey. <laughs> that's great. Uh, so, what what are your plans, man? What what's what's the next stage for your life? You got any books coming up, or are you just going on a? Yeah, what's going on? This is it, Tom. This this is this is my this is swan it. song. This is my last podcast. Yeah, I'm going. I'm going back into a bunker for 12 years, and maybe you'll hear me in the 2030s at some point. I'm done, man. It's done. That's it. That's, that's it. Um, I'm I'm working on book number two. Uh, that's it's definitely in the works and shaping up to be um, pretty exciting. Uh, so that'll hopefully not take 12 years. And uh, we are um, developing this documentary series. And oh, we're talking nice. to different networks and streamers about, and that's uh, that's that that's going well. Um, I'm in all these conversations with colleagues at Harvard and MIT about different projects and different initiatives and ways to have conversations like this um, at the highest levels of academia. Uh, that is also public facing to you know bring to bear all the tools of the humanities and sciences to 
to have these conversations and crack some of these mysteries. Um, there, there's no shortage of, of, of stuff. I'm a busy boy, man. That's awesome, man. Uh, maybe even one day, well, I'm actually still, tra- we're not allowed to leave Australia, actually, because I, I had all these plans on going to Mexico and uh, actually uh, hooking up with the, the relatives of Maria Savina and all this kind of stuff. But then that obviously with the pandemic. Really? Yeah, yeah, for real. Going to do a film, a documentary. But yeah, that's not going to happen for me anytime soon. But we'll see. Yeah, but hopefully. I need to put you in touch with. Yeah, yeah, go I'll ahead. Put you in touch with somebody who, who would be interested in talking to you about that. Yeah, yeah, please, man. We'll, we'll keep in touch. I'd even one day I'd love to do a, like an in person podcast. I can pop down to Uruguay. I love that place, man. Or even in Chile. Come and I, I <laughs> please, and I love Chile. Uh, yeah? I love it. I love it too. I want to meet all the all the Camposanos. Yeah, man. Yeah. Have Have you been to Chile before? Uh, I have only once, twice, only only once I think. Uh, so I would love to see it again. My my wife was there a couple of years ago in Atacama. Uh, it's it's this is a really beautiful part of the world, man. You're you're more than welcome. Uh, awesome, man. Uh, yeah, maybe we can even podemos hacer un podcast en español. We'll see. Perfecto. Sería impresionante. Sería imponente. Imponente. For the Spanish fans, yeah. Anyways, man, I'll, I'll, I think this is a good time to end it, man. I'd love to keep connected. I think there's a lot to delve into. Maybe I can, I'll can. i reach out to you when I am finish the Bible and uh, we'll, I'll share you my thoughts. <laughs> you found the Bible, man. Yeah, You're it's a so grown fun. man. This is fantastic. I know, I'm a big boy this now. This is fantastic. <laughs> this is... I, I want to... I when you get to the Gospel of John... Yeah, we need to talk, okay? Hundred percent, hundred percent. And uh, yeah, if you have any yeah. resources, I want to get on. And, uh, yeah, Link, so we'll keep in touch, man. I'll, I really enjoyed this uh, podcast, and uh, I think you're doing beautiful things, man. I think it's there's a reason why your book has had the success it has because I think people are yearning for this kind of stuff, and you've done it in a legit way, you know, not just a stoner hippie way. And I think it was wise choice for you to stay a psychedelic virgin, you know, for people to take it more more seriously. So, congrats, brother. Thank you. And, for, for, uh, for, for the time being, I appreciate it, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. Well, good luck on your second book. And yeah, man, we'll keep in touch. And uh, just for people listening at home, where can they reach you? Or is, is there anything you want to plug? Outside the Immortality Key, of course, which uh, you should get it immediately. Uh, yeah, get the Immortality Key in, in all its multimedia formats. Um, the, the Audible is the number 10 on the New York Times bestsellers list. Wow. Uh, which was a surprise to me. Uh, I, I read it myself over 15 hours. Uh, mm-hmm. So that that's one experience, uh, which which is interesting. And then, I mean, the book, you know, is, is a beautiful product. And it has 700 uh, endnotes for, for nerds who like to look at that stuff. So uh, I think they're, they're both good options, frankly, perfect holiday gifts. And uh, you can find all the latest updates and this podcast. I'm going to post this on my website, obviously. Uh, my name is hard to spell, but if you just go to theimmortalitykey.com, it'll transfer over to brianmurescu.com, and you can find me that way. And, and the book is available anywhere uh, books are sold. Is that, is that what do people say? Is that how you say it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> Something like that. There you go. Now, yeah, I'll, I'll leave all the links in the, in the show notes, but yeah, man. Awesome talking to you, and uh, yeah, I'll, I'll catch you soon, brother. All the best. Have a good yeah, night. I, I can't. And enjoy Uruguay. Okay, you too. No, no, vemos por acá muy pronto. Okay. Sí, por supuesto. Yeah, ahí nos vemos. Chao, chao. Chao, chao.
拜拜。